A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers the day I took them by the hand to lead them forth from the land of Egypt, for they broke my covenant, and I had to show myself their master, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will place my law within them and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer will they have need to teach their friends and relatives how to know the Lord. All from the least to the greatest shall know me, says the Lord. For I will forgive their evil doing and remember their sin no more. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as we wrap up this series, One Covenant Becoming God's Family, what we've learned is that that's exactly what a covenant does. It is a a sacred bond. It makes us kin. It turns us into family. And so through God's covenant, we become His family. Now, this is really interesting. Through these Old Testament covenants that we've, all, that we've been looking at, we see how God's been enlarging and expanding His family. So, go with me all the way back to Adam and Eve. You start with a marriage, and then you move to Noah, and you've got a household. It's him, his wife, his sons, and their wives. Then you get to Abraham, and it's the beginning of a tribe, and then through Isaac and Jacob, 12 tribes. Then you get to Moses. By that time, it's a nation, and then as we heard last week about King David, now it's a kingdom. But now we turn to the new covenant today in Jesus, and it's gotten even bigger. It's the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. This isn't just Old Testament Israel. It's not just one race of people that is God's family. No, no, no. There's people on every continent, every language, every race brought into this new covenant. So that's one reason why God gives us the new covenant. The other reason what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time today is what Jeremiah said in our Old Testament reading. Hear these words again, please. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now, again, it sounded, I know, like a broken record every week. God gives a covenant, they break it. Particularly what Jeremiah is referring to here is the covenant we heard two weeks ago. God brought his people Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and what Jeremiah says, it's for a wedding. The Lord becomes their husband. The rabbis would refer to this the same way. But just days after the wedding at Sinai, Israel breaks their wedding vows. You remember the episode, the golden calf. They say, this stupid cow is now going to be our God. But that starts a pattern. It's a pattern of idolatry throughout the whole Old Testament. What Jeremiah is saying here is that idolatry is actually adultery. There's a lot of things that husbands and wives do to each other that hurts and does a lot of damage to their relationship, but there's probably nothing that is more devastating than when one of them commits adultery. It's fascinating to me, in a culture like ours, where when, we, when it comes to our sexuality, I mean, anything goes. You can do whatever you want with whomever you want. It doesn't matter. There's, there are no rules, except there's one rule still. There is still one rule. 
don't cheat. Don't cheat. And it's because it hurts. We know that. It's because deep down inside, we know it's not just sex. In fact, when, when, it's, when we're at our very best, when, when one spouse vows themselves to the other and vice versa, it's not just their body parts coming together, it's them coming together. It's giving yourself to this other person, giving your heart to them. But then see, when one of you cheats and betrays that sacred bond, it's, it's devastating. It's, it's heartbreaking. It's marriage-breaking. Now, I know by bringing this very thing up, I'm probably on very fragile ground for some of us because there's a lot of, probably a lot of heartbreak. There's, there's regrets or bad memories. Or, or maybe there's a sense of exposure. There's some conviction and guilt for what you're doing right now with someone else or what you're watching, whatever. But hopefully by bringing this up, I, I'm trying to help us to see now by analogy how personal sin really is. I mean, how do you look at your sins? What, how, what do you, how do you understand sin? You know, a few minor infractions against God's rules, and then, you know, eventually he kind of just gets over it. No, no. Sin is committing adultery against God. It's, it's cheating on God. The, the one who should be our true love. No, no, we make something else or someone else. We give that thing or person all of our love and all of our affections. And it breaks his heart. Because our God has given his whole heart, he's given him all, his whole self to us, can totally dedicated himself to us, and then we cheat on him. Okay. But then can a marriage heal from infidelity? Absolutely. Yes, of course. And that's the rest of what Jeremiah talks about then. He gives us some ingredients that then heal this rupture, this marriage bond with God, which then applies to our marriages too when they've been ruptured. That's what this new covenant is all about. So first of all, there has to be forgiveness. That's why God says through Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, this doesn't mean forget as like it's just sort of erased from the memory. You can't just pretend it didn't happen. Of course not. But, but what you can do is not hold it against the person anymore. Now, how do you get there? In the Old Testament, God gave the whole sacrificial system of the temple, all of those animals, all the blood that was shed, and yet ultimately those animals could not take away the sin of Israel. But then we get to the new covenant, the New Testament, and, and, and oh my gosh, this, this is the good news. This is what's so amazing. The faithful husband takes upon himself the infidelities of the bride. And he takes them and he destroys them at that cross. And no longer are they held against us. They are remembered no more by our God. We don't come to God and say, yeah, but I remember what you did last week. I remember what you did three years ago. He doesn't hold it against us anymore. We, let, let this never stop amazing you as we heard that rendition of amazing grace. This is the amazing grace we give him our sin, he gives us forgiveness. We give him our unfaithfulness, he gives us his everlasting faithful love. That's the new covenant. 
That takes us then to the second ingredient, that that forgiveness begins to change our heart. God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God's law, His Word, begins to be internalized. Let me use an analogy. If you've ever studied a foreign language, I studied a few to become a pastor, of course. You have to learn the grammar, and you learn the vocabulary, and the syntax, etc., 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 but, but here's something that I was never able to do, is to get to the point with that language, to be so familiar and so fluent that I could actually think in that language instead of English. But when you get to that point with a language, now you know you have really internalized it. So when it comes to God's law and we look at the Old Covenant, we look at Sinai, God gave them the Ten Commandments, that they were to keep these. That was their part of the responsibility of the covenant. And they were external to them. They were literally written on stone. And we know them. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. But what happens in the New Covenant? That law of God, the Hebrew is the Torah, the Word of God isn't written on stone. The Word of God becomes flesh. The Word of God is a person, and He then enters into us. Now that Word of God is written on our hearts because that Word of God, Jesus, dwells in us. And that's what transforms that heart. You begin to fall so in love with Him. You're so grateful because He's taken you back time and time again, even though you've failed you get to the point that in your heart, you don't, you don't want to do it anymore. You don't want to do those things. I don't need the do's and the don'ts. No, no, no. I don't want to do it at all. It breaks my heart when I break his heart. I want to love him with all that I have. That's when you know it's written on your heart. And then finally, we need to be reunited. You got to come back together. And so the Lord says this, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So perhaps you know that the word know in the Old Testament in the Hebrew doesn't mean just to know information about somebody. It's much more personal and intimate than that. Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. Do you know how we really come to know him? It's actually when we completely fail and when we betrayed him. And all of a sudden, the forgiveness that we hear about all the time, you know, we hear about being forgiven, all of a sudden it goes from being this idea that forgiveness is just like a doctrine, you know, in the church and we talk about it in church. No, no, that, that forgiveness becomes real. It really actually becomes mine and I hang on to it and I cling to it because it's all I got because I've fallen on my face in failure. It's all I have to come to really know what it means to be forgiven after I've really failed. That's when we come to know Him. When we know His forgiveness, then we know His heart. I mean, you've got to ask yourself, what is so new about this new covenant? When you think about it, I mean, we've looked at all these Old Testaments. It's a broken record. They broke the covenants. We break the covenant all the time. There's nothing new about that, precisely. But here's the difference. The Old Testament covenants were all good because they were given by God, but they were limited. Remember with me that we've talked each week that every one of those Old Testament covenants had a sign that sealed the covenant, that pointed ahead to greater fulfillment. 
So let's rewind the tape very quickly. With Adam and Eve, it was their one flesh union, their marriage as husband and wife that pointed ahead to Christ and his bride, the church. With Noah, the sign was the rainbow, promising this new creation. If you look at the book of Revelation, it says there's a rainbow around God sitting upon his throne because he's inaugurating the new creation. You get to Abraham, that sign is circumcision because God promised to him he'd have descendants like stars in the sky. You come to the New Testament, most of us at least are not the bloodline of Abraham, we're not Jewish, but we've become the sons and daughters of Abraham through baptism into Jesus. And then you get to Moses, it's the blood of the covenant, right, that he sprinkled on the altar of God and then sprinkled on the people because they were being united by that blood. They were becoming blood with one another. And now we take and drink of the new covenant in his blood. And then we heard last week of David, the sign was the throne of David, that a son would sit on David's throne forever. And now our King Jesus, King of the universe, sits on his heavenly throne. So then what's the sign of the new covenant? He is. It's Jesus. All those signs in the old covenant pointing to Jesus. Here's the difference, because the new covenant gives us Jesus. And who is he? Wedded together in this one person, Jesus of Nazareth, is both God and humanity joined together. He's fully God and he's fully man. And then what does he do? He's suspended on a cross hanging between heaven and earth because in him it's all sealed and reconciled and brought back together. Heaven kisses earth. Heaven is wedded together with earth. God and us, we become one. We become family in Jesus. He is the sign. That's the new covenant. which hopefully then helps us to see why this Holy Eucharist is so essential. It is so essential to our life. This is my body given for you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. All these ingredients that I've talked about that heals, that rupture, it's all given to us. These are the benefits we are given. Forgiveness of our sins. He's written on our hearts. He comes to dwell in our hearts. And we come to know Him, to truly know Him. Why? Because I am ingesting Jesus, my God, into myself. I dwell in Him and He dwells in me. He is the husband and we, His holy church, are the bride and we are united in this new covenant. So what I think we got to do now is pray a little bit. Because a week from now, we enter that holiest of weeks when, when Jesus inaugurated this new covenant, but also because in a moment, once again, right now, today, our God, Jesus, is going to heal the marriage and reconcile us in this Eucharist. So I'd invite you, if you'd like, even to get down and pull out your kneeler and pray with me just for a moment. Oh, my Jesus, 
I've been so unfaithful to you. I am so ashamed and I am so sorry. Oh, Jesus, your grace. Forgive me, Lord. Write your name on my heart. I want to truly know you.